I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I must have seen Margaret maybe once a month, but it Margaret was not easy to establish an intimate connection with. I'm talking about an emotionally intimate connection. I would describe Margaret as the queen of compartmentalization. I didn't know any of her other friends. People have asked me many times since she passed away, did I know this person, did I know that person, this was a good friend of hers. I had no idea about any of that. I had the kind of relationship with Margaret that Margaret had with a lot of other people. It was intense, but had clear limits. It was limited in many ways. Margaret let you know what she wanted you to know and nothing more. Nearly a decade after Margaret's murder, the search for her killer had gone ice cold. And yet, aspects of Margaret's private life remained unexplored by both professional and amateur investigators. This was due in part to Margaret's need to hide parts of herself that she didn't want colleagues, friends, and family members to know. But in spite of her gift for compartmentalization, certain people did know Margaret's secrets. And as we learned over the past year, those secrets may hold the key to finding her killer. I'm Jed Lipinski. This is Gone South, season one, Who Killed Margaret Kuhn? Episode 5, Nine Lives. We spent the last few episodes examining Margaret's professional life and public persona. The dynamic steel magnolia who broke barriers at LSU. The fearless advocate turned assistant DA who prosecuted domestic abusers and pedophiles. But according to people we spoke with, Margaret led a dauntingly complex personal life, details of which were unknown to those who knew her only as an attorney. We started doing a lot with her. We liked her tremendously. She was uh, starting to just be really open. That's Rick Normand, who you heard from in episode two. He and his wife were law school classmates with Margaret, and the trio became close friends. 
She had been raised extremely strictly and conservatively in a Baptist environment in central Louisiana. And then she married her high school sweetheart, and then he was in the Army, which is a very conservative place to be, and the wives are supposed to be very conservative. Anyway, somewhere along the line, we were getting closer and closer to her, and we said, Margaret, uh, we're going to a lot of movies. We're going out to eat a lot. We want to meet your husband. She said, oh, no, he's busy or he's whatever. When Rick Norman met Margaret at LSU Law School, she was still married to her high school boyfriend, an Air Force captain named Ronnie Penny. But as Rick got to know her, he realized the two of them were growing apart. She was emotionally growing more distant from her husband and kind of latched on to us, and we thought she was terrific. And so final exams were approaching, and we're all studying, you know, day and night. And she just literally dropped out of sight. As Rick later learned, Margaret and her husband had gotten a divorce, and Margaret had fallen into a deep depression. She dropped out of law school and didn't re-enroll until a year or so later. When she reappeared on campus, Rick noticed a change in her. My impression was she didn't want to live in the world that she had been raised in. She wanted to be a very liberated woman and independent. She was smart enough to be very liberated and independent and make her own way. She didn't care about the old staid and traditional way. She wanted glamour. Rick remembers Margaret telling him about a party she'd attended in Dallas during her time away, following her divorce. She had talked about a trip to Dallas. I don't know if she went with somebody from Baton Rouge. She was invited to this party. It was all lesbian, wealthy, professional women lived their own life by their own terms. She described the woman's penthouse as, you know, gorgeous and elegant. And she just couldn't stop talking about these confirmed lesbians who dressed and ate and drank and, you know, do fine wine and collected art and had grand homes. And I think that was the life she maybe wanted to live. In 1974, Rick and his wife graduated from LSU and moved to Germany to do legal work for the U.S. Army. But they kept in touch with Margaret as she completed law school. In one letter, Margaret told them that she'd started dating a woman who she'd met during an international law program in Greece. As Rick explained, the woman was a self-avowed socialist, what he called a counterculture hippie kind of woman who hated displays of wealth. Back in the States, Margaret invited the woman to her opulent apartment in Baton Rouge. Now you'd have to imagine gold silk sofa and, you know, Chippendale chairs, <laughs> just <laughs> paintings and fresh flowers every two days, you know. Anyway, the woman took one look and said, I was not expecting this. 
I want to, you know, work on social justice issues, and this is obscene to me. So I think the woman left early, and she didn't stay the whole weekend. The relationship quickly fizzled. But as Margaret detailed in a subsequent letter to Rick and his wife, she had started another relationship, this time with a man, a hairstylist and notorious bon vivant named Rex McGee. Rex McGee was kind of a legend in Baton Rouge for giving grand, elegant dinner parties, Hollywood-style parties, fancy dress-up parties. Uh, I mean, he was quite Mr. Elegant. Uh, And he did, on and off, have a woman on his arm, you know, whether they would go to Mardi Gras balls or debutante cotillions or whatever. At some point, he asked her out, and, you know, she was a trophy on his arm. A Baton Rouge newspaper published a photograph of Margaret and Rex attending a ball at the Capitol House in 1974. Rex, who was 15 years older than Margaret, looks dapper in a tuxedo with slick back hair. Margaret, 29 at the time, is glowing beside him in a silk ball gown. She seems ecstatic to be there. It's unclear whether Rex and Margaret had a sexual relationship, but according to Rick, it was widely known that Rex McGee was gay. I think she liked him. and I mean, in kind of a romantic way, but I don't think it ever went there. I think she was enthralled that he lived the kind of life she dreamed of living. For Margaret, Rex seemed to provide an escape hatch from her conservative upbringing and the stifling norms of the era. Rick remembers a story Margaret told about a New Year's Eve party at Rex's house. This is just one example of his parties. A lady that was also a very high society in Baton Rouge went to his party, and she went in a full-length mink coat, and she kept the full-length mink coat on, even though people said, let me take your coat, let me take your coat. At the stroke of midnight, she dropped the coat and she did not have one stitch of clothing on. And that's how she rang in the new year. But that's what an example of what Rex's friends were like. They were fast, furious, (laughs) alcohol-fueled, and trying to live the high life in sleepy old Baton Rouge. Others who knew Margaret around this time said she carried on multiple affairs with men and women often simultaneously in the wake of her divorce. One ex-lover we spoke to on the condition of anonymity described Margaret as trisexual because she would try anything. And yet, Margaret also kept these affairs hidden from those closest to her. As her ex-lover later said, she never let her left hand know what her right hand was doing. But then, in her final year of law school, Margaret experienced a traumatic event. She wrote a letter telling us that she had an affair. I think the man was from Latin America. He might have been a law student. I don't know. And she was using birth control pills, and somehow she got pregnant. So she and the man arranged an abortion. According to Rick, Margaret didn't discover she was pregnant until her second trimester, and the doctor who did the surgery punished her for it. As he performed the operation, 
He described each step of removing the fetus in excruciating detail. If his goal was to overwhelm Margaret with guilt, he succeeded. And Margaret just completely, according to her letters, said she just drove home, went to bed, and then her mother told us that uh, Margaret did not get out of bed for four days. She did not eat. She did not take a shower. She did not brush her teeth. She did not wash her face. She did not stop crying. Margaret had fallen apart, nervous breakdown, whatever you want to call it. In her letters to Rick and his wife, Margaret described contemplating suicide. She did tell me that several times she took a flight from Baton Rouge to Alexandria, and she told me that she prayed that the plane would crash because she didn't want to live anymore. Rick and his wife stayed in Germany for several more years, and they heard from Margaret only sporadically. During that time, she graduated from LSU, got a job at the state attorney general's office, and married Bernard Smith, who was then the mayor of Mandeville. When Rick and his wife finally returned to Louisiana in the late 70s, they ran into Margaret's old flame, Rex McGee. He invited them over to see his new house. He told me he had built a brand new house, and I said, I'd like to see it. He said, come over. It was, you know, ultra-modern house, but stocked with antiques everywhere, just 18th century everywhere. Uh, all glass, looking on the lake. When Rick spoke to Margaret a few days later, he mentioned his visit to Rex's fabulous new pad. I said, oh, I got invited to Rex's house. It's really a show place. She said, I, I have to go. Uh, I'm at work. Bye. Bam. The next day, a letter came saying, don't ever speak to me again. You're dead to me. I'm dead to you. The letter shocked Rick and his wife. They both loved Margaret and considered her one of their closest friends. They called her and wrote her letters, but Margaret never responded. Rick still doesn't know why, but he assumed that his knowledge of her wild days in Baton Rouge threatened the new life Margaret had created with Bernard. Rick followed her career from a distance, but he never spoke with her again. When I met her, I believed that she was single. And, and then she got involved with um, Bernard Smith. Uh, that was the first of her romantic uh, connections that I knew about. That's Linda Floyd, who you heard from at the top of the episode. Linda was the psychologist who helped Margaret on the interdiction case in episode two. She remembers going out to dinner with Margaret and Bernard sometime in the early 80s, after Margaret had moved to Mandeville. Linda brought a date with her, and he was drunk. And after several cocktails, he literally reached across the table and squeezed Margaret's breast, like a drunk man would do. And Margaret did not flinch. She smiled. She didn't say a word to him. He did it again. And I finally said, you know, to hell. You're embarrassing me. You're rude to this woman. You got to stop it. But Margaret never once said a word to him, and she never mentioned it to me again. And it was so astonishing to me that she could be so contained and stoic. And I'm looking at her saying, Margaret, what you, you don't have to put up with this. 
But she had a way of icing over that, you know, she wasn't going to give you one inch of her vulnerability. By the time Margaret arrived in St. Tammany, she had been through a lot. The rampant sexism at LSU, the divorce from her first husband, grappling with her own sexuality, the abortion. It's hard to know exactly how these experiences shaped her. But as she settled into her new life as a married attorney, she seems to have closed off a part of herself. That icy exterior she showed Linda's date at dinner, it manifested itself in her most intimate relationships too. Which is why, in the wake of Margaret's death, most people had no idea she may have been leading a secret life. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. <laughs> and now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last. By the 1970s, non-heterosexuality in Louisiana was still strictly taboo. But in downtown New Orleans, the 78 square blocks known as the French Quarter served as a long-standing exception. In fact, the quarter is home to the oldest continuously operating gay bar in the country, Café Lafitte in Exile, which opened in 1933. While most of the city and the region were steeped in conservative values, Gay and lesbian bars in the quarter provided a sanctuary for people from across the Deep South. Although you had to be quiet and you couldn't announce who you were, it was much less restrictive than the rural parishes in, in Louisiana. And a lot of people, they saw this as more freedom. That's Liz Simon, a clinical social worker and political activist who spent time in New Orleans' early gay bar scene. People from the rural parishes would come to New Orleans to party, to socialize, to be able to socialize, and then to put down roots. The French Quarter had made a name for itself as a safe place for non-heterosexuals in the South. But on June 24th, 1973, a horrific act of violence stunned New Orleans' gay community. As patrons of a small second-story bar called the Upstairs Lounge celebrated the fourth anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, an arsonist set fire to the first floor of the building. The blaze climbed the stairwell and ripped through the bar like a tidal wave. The bartender, Buddy Rasmussen, rushed a small group through an unmarked emergency exit, narrowly escaping the fire. But those who couldn't hear or see Rasmussen remained trapped in the front room. Those inside said there was massive panic and people started running all over. Most headed for the windows, but that proved to be a tragic decision. 
They were stopped immediately by iron bars over the windows. Police say the bar is a hangout for homosexuals, and homosexuals frequently carry false identification papers, making positive identification of the victims nearly impossible. The fire left 32 dead and 16 injured. It remains the deadliest fire in New Orleans history and was the deadliest attack on a gay bar until the Pulse nightclub shooting in 2016, which claimed 49 lives. But despite the scale of the tragedy, the public response ranged from indifference to contempt, even among first responders. On the night of the fire, one eyewitness claimed to have overheard an exchange between two firemen. We can't get up there, one said. Oh, fuck it, the other responded. It's only faggots. Let them burn. A photograph of the scene shows civilians pushing a gurney while cops stand idle in the background. The flash fire spread throughout the second-story bar in a matter of seconds. Those who escaped reported smelling gasoline before the room was engulfed with flames. And two eyewitnesses, who would not allow their faces to be shown, told WWL-TV newsman Bill Elder it was arson. I'm not going to say murder. I will say that what was done was done intentionally. The police managed to identify a suspect. According to multiple survivors, a man named Roger Dale Nunez was kicked out of the bar shortly before the fire for drunkenly harassing customers. A man matching his physical description was later seen buying a can of lighter fluid at a nearby Walgreens. But Nunez was never arrested. A year after the fire, he committed suicide. The gay and lesbian community not only had to worry about random acts of violence, they also had to be alert to discriminatory laws. This is Liz Simon again. You would be arrested if you were dancing with another woman, if you were kissing another woman at the bar, if you didn't have three feminine articles of clothing on you, and they had to be specific, and usually it was undergarments. That was a regulation from the New Orleans Police Department. You know, you were breaking the law by congregating in a place of business and having a few drinks and socializing and dancing. In the 70s, a woman named Charlene Schneider was arrested multiple times for lewd behavior, obscenity, and other bogus homophobic charges. Charlene passed away of leukemia in 2006, but we spoke with her partner of 20 years, Linda Tucker. I think Charlene had been arrested seven times. And uh, I know one time it was just for being outside her bar talking to several women on the sidewalk. And that was probably the time that it was in, in the paper. Charlene worked for NASA's Michoud Assembly Plant in New Orleans East which built rockets for the Apollo space program. She had a secret security clearance, but when a police report detailing her arrest appeared in the Times-Picayune, her boss hauled her into his office. Her boss said, are, are you gay? And she said, yes. And then the rest is history. You're fired. Charlene was 24 at the time. When she lost her job, she was unable to pay rent and had to rely on friends for food. She later told an interviewer, that's what makes you get mad enough. When you've lost everything, when you've got nothing left to lose, you fight back. So that's when she decided to 
have her own bar and a safe place for women to go and not be harassed by whomever. And so Charlene found a building for sale well off the beaten path. Charlene's bar was, you know, at 940 Legion Fields, and um, it wasn't in the quarter. It was, it was not the best place in town, I would say, but um, Charlene hired security guards, and she kind of protected everybody, not just inside the bar, but outside the bar, too. She was tough. I mean, small, skinny little woman, but she, she was very tough. If someone was in the wrong place, she would escort them out. Charlene's was a sanctuary by design, and Charlene set the tone. And Charlene was always at the door, greeting people. You know, she had kind of a Cajun accent, and she'd say, well, hello, hello, darling. Welcome to Charlene's. People would say, who is this woman being so, why is she being so nice to us? Charlene may have been nice, but she knew how vulnerable the lesbian community was. The night of the upstairs lounge fire, Charlene was supposed to be there, but fate intervened. Charlene and her friends were on the way to the upstairs lounge, and um, she had new shoes, and she got sidetracked because her feet were hurting. And she told her friends to go on to the, to the uh, upstairs lounge, and she'd catch up with them later, and her friends were in the lounge when the fire started, and they didn't make it out. That experience, combined with her own arrests, shaped Charlene's approach to running her bar. She was part charming hostess, part guard dog. The bar's location also made it more discreet than other lesbian bars in the French Quarter. Ellen DeGeneres, who grew up in a suburb of New Orleans, is said to have hung out at Charlene's years before she came out publicly. Some patrons were out of the closet, but others weren't, and they probably wanted to keep it that way. One patron who would have appreciated the discretion was Margaret Kuhn. From what we can tell, Margaret spent a good deal of time at Charlene's, but she kept it a secret. Linda Floyd, for example, was surprised when she first heard that Margaret hung out there. But then again, that was Margaret's M.O. She had a lot going on that I knew nothing about. She had a lot of things in her life that she kept to herself. So she, she lived in a lot of different compartments and um, was so adept at keeping them separate one from another. I would say Margaret had at least nine lives, but not so much nine lives that she kept surviving from a failure, but nine lives that she lived simultaneously. The closest Margaret came to revealing her sexuality to Linda came over lunch one day. There was another friend of mine that was with us, and Margaret asked us point blank if my friend and I were involved together. And we answered, no, we weren't, and we, we weren't. And, um, and then she, she sort of covered that with saying, oh, there was a time when she was in Greece, she had some relationship with a woman, it was an interesting experiment. And that was the end of the conversation. I, I had no other information about her involvement with women. But other people did have this information. And as a young St. Tammany journalist would discover, they were never aggressively pursued. There were a whole lot of people who knew Margaret Kuhn, a whole lot of people who probably had been hurt by Margaret Kuhn, and people who loved Margaret Kuhn, who nobody ever talked to about the death of Margaret Kuhn.
I started working at the News Banner in August of 1994. And uh, like many semi-weekly newspapers, there was you know, a very small staff and we all covered a lot of different things. That's James Hartman. He moved to the North Shore after graduating from Tulane University in New Orleans. My beat included the city of Mandeville, the town of Abita Springs, the state legislature, the state police, and I covered health and environmental stories. So it was pretty uh, a pretty miserable uh, uh, slog through a whole lot of different things and a whole lot of responsibility for very little pay. But a year after taking the job, James got an intriguing assignment. In uh, Late 1995, the editor and publisher decided they wanted to look at some cold cases that were unsolved and to revisit those in the paper. And I got assigned the Margaret Kuhn case, which was fascinating. James had heard of the case since moving to the North Shore, but he wasn't familiar with all the details. All I knew was that she was an assistant district attorney who had been uh, murdered in Beauchamp. I don't recall knowing anything else about it. Uh, Natural's suspicion for you know armchair quarterbacks is to think that if she was an assistant DA, then the killer was probably someone she'd put in prison um, or the family member of someone she'd put in prison. Um, but then once I started digging into the case as a reporter, I found that it was much more complex than that. James began his search with local law enforcement. Well, the first thing we did was ask for access to records from the DA and the sheriff and were flatly told no, that that was still an active and open case and that we couldn't see anything that they had. So James went to plan B. Over the years, one of his colleagues had developed a relationship with Margaret's father, Webster. And Webster agreed to give James the files that his personal private eye, Sandra Davis, had acquired. Well, it was largely a collection of interviews with Margaret's neighbors, with other people who had been witnesses to not the crime, but to other things such as people who had seen the dog um, untended the night Margaret was killed, people who'd seen Margaret jogging with the dog. There was the account of the fire department spraying the scene with fire extinguishers to get the dog to move off the body, thus destroying any potential forensics right there. Uh, Even forensics that wouldn't have been useful at the time had they been preserved might have been useful now. Based on the documents and rumors circulating at the time, James gleaned that Margaret may have been a lesbian or bisexual. So he started asking around. Well, as a gay man myself, I had, you know, some some familiarity with the the subculture, the gay subculture in New Orleans. The lesbian subculture in New Orleans has always been very tight knit. Um, at least it was then. You know, six degrees of separation in New Orleans, it's two degrees of separation, no matter who you are. But also, my partner at the time had an aunt who was a lesbian, who ha- was Margaret's contemporary. James asked his partner's aunt if she knew Margaret, and sure enough, they'd moved in the same circles, and she was able to steer me in a lot of different directions about people who might have known Margaret and who might have had information relevant to the case had they ever been asked. You know, I learned that Margaret had left a string of jilted lovers, both male and female, in her wake for years, and that she had a habit of really breaking people's hearts. And it didn't seem to me that anybody had looked at that particular angle on the case. James had been to Charlene's bar once or twice during college. In reporting the story, He went back and chatted up some patrons, inquiring about Margaret Kuhn. You know, we learned that Margaret's dog, Charlene, had been named after the owner of Charlene's bar. But there was nothing in the case file that I was able to see where anybody had ever talked to Charlene or ventured into Charlene's bar to talk to regular patrons there to see if anybody knew Margaret or had any idea who might want her dead. 
It underscored to me that a lot of Margaret's personal life had been overlooked in this investigation. Not only does no one know who killed Margaret, but no one seems to have really known Margaret. At one point, James's partner's aunt connected him to a woman named Retha Brannon. Retha had dated Margaret in the mid-70s when she was an undergraduate at LSU. James interviewed her for hours on the phone. She was very, very forthcoming. She talked about how much Margaret was uh, kind and generous and loving until a crazy part of her came out. And she indicated that Margaret would start relationships with both men and women and become very emotionally involved with them and then simply cut them off, simply drop them like a hot rock and break their hearts. According to Retha, this was a pattern of behavior with Margaret her whole life. Reel people in and then drop them uh, over and over again and and left a, a trail of broken hearts in her wake. In contrast to the five-star reviews we got from Margaret's former colleagues, Retha was deeply divided in her opinion of Margaret. Retha told me she was either the most horribly wonderful person or wonderfully horrible person I've ever met. I don't know which. My impression of Margaret is that she didn't let a lot of people really get to know her very well at all. A lot of the ones who did get to know her wound up having a love-hate relationship with her because of the way she treated them. Based on his reporting, James concluded that investigators could have done more to understand Margaret. And he had thoughts as to why that was. Well, I have two theories on that. Neither one is exclusive to the other. Uh, One is that out of respect for Margaret's privacy, nobody wanted to go delving into that element of her life. You know, we're talking about the late 1980s attitudes towards homosexuality were very different then. Uh, Certainly St. Tammany Parish was very different then. Margaret was very well liked in the law enforcement community. So investigators looking at her death, assuming they discovered it, likely would have circled the wagons to try to protect her reputation. My other theory is that a lot of, uh, and forgive the stereotype, the rural background detectives from what was then a rural agency would not have wanted to explore that part of of life in New Orleans. And it was the height of the AIDS epidemic. They would have found it um, creepy. The idea of walking into a gay bar or a lesbian bar and asking questions um, and potentially exposing themselves to the types of people that they didn't want to be around was something that they were simply not willing to do. But as James pointed out, the feeling was probably mutual. The the people that I'm suggesting they should have talked to and didn't probably had the same stereotypical feelings and didn't want to cross the lake and talk to the investigators about what they knew about Margaret either. James published his article titled Coon Killing Confounds Investigators in January 1996. He ended it with something Retha wrote in the wake of Margaret's death. Retha wrote this in her journal. You danced with death in the flame of every life you touched. You were a living cancer. I'm sorry you were murdered, but I'm glad you'll never hurt another. But the story didn't ignite the kind of interest James was hoping for. What happened next? I don't recall anything happening next, quite honestly. Um, it It was far more impactful to me than it seemed to be to anybody else. I shared the article with some of my friends in that in that community. But I, I continued to try to, to prime that pump um, and see if anything else would shake loose that was worthy of a follow-up. But nothing ever came of it. When I first heard James's story, it caused me to reevaluate my opinion of the official investigation. 
How had a cub reporter for the news banner managed to uncover details that seasoned detectives overlooked? But as I later discovered, the sheriff's office had known about Retha long before James stumbled onto her. The investigative file contains a 45-page interview with her, conducted by Detective Jay Daigle at Retha's home in Alabama on January 6, 1989, less than two years after Margaret died. Their conversation was wide-ranging. They discussed a number of theories I'd never heard before, such as the idea that Margaret was not murdered, but out of suicidal despair, had hired someone to kill her. Retha also wondered if perhaps Margaret had AIDS and was killed by a lover she'd given it to. But Daigle told her a post-mortem AIDS test had ruled that out. Retha was uninhibited in what she divulged about Margaret's private life. In addition to their own relationship, she described flings Margaret had with a half a dozen other women, including someone Retha called Amazing Grace. She said Margaret hung out with a group of lesbian bikers. She even claimed Margaret had a three-way affair with her best friend and the friend's husband during her days in Baton Rouge. And yet, as James Hartman suggested, it doesn't seem like detectives pursued these leads. The sheriff's file contains no interviews with other ex-girlfriends. Judging from the documents we received, they never spoke with Charlene or any of the patrons James talked to. Instead, Detective Jay Daigle wound up asking people like Margaret's boyfriend, Jay Fagan, about Margaret's sexual history. As you may recall from episode two, Fagan denied any knowledge of Margaret's bisexuality or a three-way sex affair she may have engaged in. Of course, Jay Fagan, a wealthy and well-known periodontist, was exactly the kind of person Margaret would have hid such details from. From that perspective, it's hard to escape the idea that detectives missed a crucial avenue of investigation. But still, detectives did pursue one person mentioned in the Retha Brandon interview. A person Retha believed may have had a dramatic falling out with Margaret. This person happened to live in Beauchamp at the time of Margaret's death. In fact, her condo was located just 50 yards from where Margaret's body was found. If you have tips or information that you'd like to share related to the unsolved murder of Margaret Kuhn or other relevant topics, you can call us at 650-746-GONE or email us at gonesouthpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Gone South, a direction and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 company. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran of Cadence 13, along with John Liebman, Ken Lee, and Jared Shear. Written and narrated by me, Jed Lipinski. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Produced by Tom Lipinski. Edited by Alistair Sherman, with assistant editing by Molly Nugent. Research and production support by Ian Mont and Paige Heimson. Recording and engineering by Bob Tabador, Bill Schultz, and Sean Cherry. And mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Original music written and performed by Casey Wayne McAllister. Production consulting by Skip Sewell. Marketing and publicity by Brian Swarth, Moira Curran, Hilary Schuff, and Josephina Francis. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. 
In 2016, Justin Alexander, an adventurer, was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive deep into our investigation and uncover the strange events surrounding Justin's disappearance, in status untraced. Check out this sneak preview. And this last experience he had with Rawat, I didn't feel good about it. In fact, I felt it was dangerous. It sounds strange, but I just, in my mother's heart, something was not okay. I felt that he was a nefarious character. Status Untraced is available now. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.